Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome back to Foment About It <laughs> on Heritage Radio Network. We air every Monday night, live at 7 o'clock p.m. I'm Mary Isette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. Chris Kuz back from Hong Kong. I'm very glad to have him back in the studio. Yeah, Happy shucks. New Year. This is our first show of 2013. We're very excited. We have Chris Loveridge here to talk about yeast tonight. Hi, Chris. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we, we, we'll have a couple of announcements. So the first announcement that, that we want to make is that, for those of you that don't know, um, if you're in the New York City area or, or beyond, Chris Kuzme is now the head brewer at 508 Gaster Brewery. Just brewer. I like just <laughs> just Congratulations. Brewer. Thank you <laughs> very much. Yay. Thank you very much. We're Manhattan's smallest brewery. Hey, look at that. You guys are so nice. I love you, Roberta's. <laughs> We're there live in Roberta's in Bushwick. They're all very nice here. It's a live studio audience. Um, yeah, we're the we're Manhattan's smallest brewing uh, facility. It's a two barrel system, and it is. I'm really honored to to be there. It's awesome. It's a really fun time. The family is great over there. The food is incredible. The wine is incredible, and uh, the beer I think keeps up as well. I agree. <laughs> I agree. So Chris has about. I think he has. What you have two beers on tap right now. Yeah, and you've brewed six. So far? Eight now. Actually. Eight now. Eight now. And so. actually, I'm having a nice event uh, in, in honor of President Obama's second term. Uh, I just brewed with our with our contingent or <laughs> our constituent uh zach kinney we made the white house london or white house honey porter and uh, i don't know if you guys know the story about that but uh the white house has been making their own beer for quite some time now and a lot of us home brewers around the country uh, signed a petition and demanded the recipe as per the freedom of information act so we just brewed a anyway they released the, the recipe they released two recipes the porter yes. and an and an, an ale right lighter lighter yep. blonde honey, ale. honey what ale. a great honey. use of that act I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> absolutely but anyway uh, we just brewed this beer and we used local honey from upstate nature's way and we had a couple twists of our own uh just on you know based on it there some things were kind of nebulous in there they didn't tell you what kind of bittering hops they used i used cent- uh centennial and uh, I actually did some first wort hopping. Anyway, I'm very, very excited about this, and we'll be releasing it at 508 on on January 21st until until kegs kick. In the uh, four more beers event. Four more beers. So four more beers. Four after more. we'll be heading there after our January 21st show. Um, if anybody wants to meet us down there. And actually, it's pretty serendipitous because that day, actually, Peter Hepp from uh, Beereria at Italy, uh, one of New York's other two uh, brew pubs, is going to be our guest, and he brews a lot with honey, and so I'll be you know. Yeah, so that show is going to be all about brewing with honey, basically, yep. which is very exciting. Same day as we release this honey ale. Yeah. <laughs> all in good time. The only other announcement is uh, Homebrew Alley number seven is coming up. So what date is that, Chris? That is February 8th and 9th. Uh, it's a national hump, uh, competition uh, sanctioned by the AHA and the BJCP. Uh, you can find more information about that at homebrewalley.org. Uh, the, uh, registration is open now. Uh, and if you're in the New York area and you want to help out, if you're a BJCP judge, you can also sign up for it there. If you want to steward and want to see what a competition is about, uh, we definitely need volunteers as well to help that go on. And we're you do not need to be a judge to do that. Correct. So anyone, if you're interested in, in learning how homebrew competitions um, 
you know, work and run and tasting some interesting beer, please, you know, sign up to be a steward. And if you just want to hang out and maybe even, uh, you know, just support your fellow local New York homebrewers, we're actually doing it at at uh, Alewife Queens, one of Long Island City's uh, best beer bars. I mean, one of New York City's beer, best beer bars. Mm-hmm. It's a really awesome place. Patrick Doniger has been really awesome to open up his his arms to uh, to us homebrewers and to allow us to hold it there. We're going to have a giant party on the 9th. Um, starting at six o'clock till 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 the end. Yeah, we'll, we'll have, have the award, award ceremony. ceremony. Yep. Which features a giant giant championship <laughs> belt for the best of show winner. Very yeah, so exciting. That'll be a lot of fun, and everybody is invited to come down. Um, if you're a home brewer in the New York area or beyond, please feel free to enter. Um, it's a how many entries did we have last year? We had six hundred and eighty entries last year. So, um, with the growing uh, you know popularity of of home Zymergy, we expect probably to break 800 this year we're one of the largest on the on the east coast and everything seems to keep growing yep it's a great way to get feedback and win cool prizes and um, it'll be a fantastic after party afterward especially if you want to meet other home brewers in the area absolutely all right so on to our show i think in our first show i i, I said we were talking about how to make beer and uh, i think there's a saying that says you know brewers make wort Yeast makes beer. They do all the work for us. They do all the work for us. So our job is to provide them a happy home and and just to make sure they're happy. And uh, what is yeast, Chris Loverich, teacher of the yeast class at Brooklyn (laughs) Homebrew? Yes, there's a. I'm just taking over the reins at the class at Brooklyn Homebrew, and yeast is all what I'm teaching about. Uh, I have a lot of experience teaching. um, For the last seven years, I've been a science teacher down at a, a school, a high school down in South Brooklyn, and. I am beyond excited to finally be able to bring all that experience to willing adults. <laughs> how does one participate in that class? And we'll, we'll retouch back on the, on the back. Do you just contact Brooklyn Homebrew? It's how many on classes the Brooklyn Homebrew all... site. Right now there's three set up. One's already sold out. The one tomorrow sold out. And two more are coming in the next two weeks. Are they individual classes or are they stages? They are individual classes now. We, you know, hopefully in the future there will be different stages and different levels for different, um, you know, different brewers and where they are and where they want to be. But to get back to your question yes. about what a yeast is, a yeast is one of our fabulous fungus, which really um, is just very, very useful for us. It's part of the whole big, uh, the whole big um, order of living things that include mushrooms and uh, different molds. But yeasts are, of course, the ones that we use for fermentation mostly. Of course, you use it also for bacteria and fermentation and other things. But it's really... Um, just those wonderful unicellular microorganisms that do everything we need them to. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love those guys. So much fun from it. <laughs> totally. If I were to, I mean, so it's everywhere, right? I mean, how does, it is everywhere. How, how do we, you know, and has a million functions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One of the great things about uh, yeast I actually get to do with my kids because uh, I cannot talk about beer with my children, of course. So we talk about bread a lot, and we actually. Um, Every year, I have them do an entire long college-level project where they get to go out and really harvest yeast straight from the air. They go outside, they go inside, and they get yeast everywhere, and all over the place. How do you have them Do you guys it? make bread from it? Yes. I end up making, you know, it definitely tastes more like a sourdough bread than anything else. Right, right. But um, what I have them do, I have them make a little bit of a sugar water solution, put a little cheesecloth on top of some beakers that, of course, I sanitize and do everything right with them, and... Let it sit out for about 24 hours. Every group does a couple samples. And they come back and um, because we're not using any hops or any antifungal um, agents, there's a lot of mold growing. 
But I would say each group out of the three, there's usually one that we get to get some yeast out of. I then put it on a petri dish to really make sure. And then I bring it up to a starter and make bread out of it with them. Okay. So you're putting, you're making like a slant basically or something, exactly. right? Exactly. But we go big <clears throat> to small and then, and then back, back to up. big. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about what a slant is. Like, why do you do that? Because actually, so that's also applicable in beer making. Yes. So what is a slant? What, what process are you doing? What does that mean? So all you're basically doing is just making a Petri dish with agar solution in sugar water. What is right? agar? Agar is actually the stuff that makes it turn into like a jello-like mm-hmm. substance. It's in jello and all those type of things, and it's used for petri dishes. Okay. And it's kind of a neutral growing substance. like a, It's yep. a substrate for the yeast to grow on. Exactly. It just makes it a little bit of solid so we can, all the um, microorganisms grow on the top. It's not mm-hmm. exactly like what happens in jello, or like what is in jello, right? Not from hooves or anything? Or is it? Where is what's the drive Agar from? can come from different, um, different from sources. Yeah. Okay. Or uh, probably animal, pro- animal products Fish as well. cuts? Could be. Is it some sort of like... Could be. Um, we have this really nice uh, science catalog that we get to order everything at the school <laughs> from. <laughs> Which you can too as, at home. Like Edmund Scientific is, is for yes. everybody. It Let's really be honest. Is. It really is. <laughs> is there a brand called Sammy? Like, can you get some Sammy Agar? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. I'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <Yeah>. So... <laughs> So when you, how do you, what, so what's the process do you do to, to get these um, samples that your students do to plate them up? Because you could do the same thing with, with beer yeast. Absolutely. And if, if you actually get good enough of this process, you could take one Y-E smack pack or whatever and put it onto a bunch of plates and just, you will always be able to keep having plates waiting for you to keep reusing. And it takes a little bit of science work. It takes a little bit of practice to really get everything going right. But if you really put some time in, you can have a lot of these last for a long time what you do is that you spread um you actually do a smear basically of the yeast onto the agar plates let it sit for a while you put it into your fridge to slow down anything that's happening but after about 24 hours you can start seeing colonies growing now bacteria can't really see easily but the yeast cells are really obvious they really have this nice little round colony that are fuzzy they're not weird looking if anything of that's happening that's mold don't put that in beer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't keep using that. Um, but then you just kind of take those samples off, put it into a nice little starter, literally like a 50 milliliter starter, shaky, shaky for 24 hours, put it in, put that 50 milliliter into a little bit bigger starter the next day, shaky, shaky for a few hours. If you have stir plates, that works great. If not, you can just keep aerating it over and over again. By shaking it. Yeah. By giving it a good shake whenever you walk past it. What is a starter? <laughs> <laughs> a starter is just the simplest beer on the planet. It's an easy brew day. It's small. Usually you only do about, um, you know, you take a one liter bottle of soda, dump out the soda, fill it up with water, and then you take about two-thirds cup of dried malt extract, put them together, heat it up, cool it down, put the yeast into it. That's sanitizing good, before. Yes. Optimally. Yep. You sanitize before, but um, at the same time... Why a starter? It makes... Okay. There's a lot of reasons why you can go into starters. Starters are just such a simple thing to do to really increase everything about your yeast. Okay? And when I say increase, sometimes that means actually less thereof. You could take away a lot of the off flavors that come from yeast because even though I've been brewing for a long time, it really took me a while to realize that a lot of the things that made my homebrew taste bad came from me not using enough yeast. So underpitching. Yeah, definitely underpitching. It wasn't a magic recipe. It wasn't some secret procedure. It was just have enough yeast to put into my beer. What I end up doing, once I realize that I can make a starter, is that you're taking something from a, um, 
this is only true for liquid yeast. Dry yeast are a little bit different story. You take um, a certain number and you just allow them to double. So you go from about, uh, what's it, uh, 100 billion cells to 200 billion cells. A little bit less. But you do that in about 24 to 48 hours, and suddenly, instead of your beer tasting all wacky with all these weird type of, like, I call it yeast noise. It just isn't a smooth, clean beer. Instead of having that problem, you go to the opposite, where suddenly it tastes like you're buying it from a bar, and you can just drink it down. And Because one thing that happens when you underpitch is that the yeast gets stressed. Really? And when stressed. they get stressed, they basically, they're, they can shoot off some... some chemicals or esters you know other types of compounds that that we interpret as as humans as off flavors right these are all this parts of fermentation they happen all the time in every fermentation process we just figure out a way to make it less concentrated less amount and that has to do with a couple of couple of things um and making a start is one of the best ways to cut down on the um the problems with that by having the right pitching rate Right. And how do you find out about the right pitching rate? So I know that I use Mr. Malty on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. That's easy. That was designed by Jamil Zanishev. He also has um, Mr. Malty, I think, online still. And has recently wrote an incredible book called Yeast. Yes. yes which we'll talk more about <laughs> in, in a bit. But so anyway, I use like, I just, you know, throw it in Mr. Malty and use a pitching calculator. That's mm-hmm. the easiest, the way that I know. Exactly. That's um, a very easy way. Uh, there's a couple general rules. Usually what I like to do is that if you're doing with something like a 1050, ale you're looking at a good one to two liters as you go up to something like a 1070 1080 you really want to original start gravity getting... we're talking about original gravity yes. for those of you who are just starting out which means um you know the more stuff in your beer and the bigger the more alcoholic you want to make your beer uh the more yeast you need exactly the more yeast you need the stronger the beer the more yeast and same thing with lagers lagers are actually you're starting over there on that high um that high strong alcohol content ale you want to put that same amount of yeast into a regular lager because the slow, the cold temperature really slows down the mm. process that they're doing. And you have to take that into account. I have made miserable lagers for years, and it's really taken me a long time to figure out to how to do it correctly. And that has to do with just putting enough yeast in. And on that note, we're going to take a <laughs> break. So thank you very much for listening to Foment About It. We'll be right back with Chris Loveridge and Yeast. Yeast. Let it go You are a dog Flying like a 
Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef Free-range, sustainably produced Humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef The authentic flavor of the American West Every Tuesday at 12 p.m., you can call food scientist Dave Arnold and ask any question you want. John from Chicago, you're on the air. Hey, hey, Dave. Who am I fooling? This is horrible stuff. Without glutamic acid, you die. It is a matter of taste, but there's a lot more fat in sausage than you think. Get ahead of the curve. Tune into Cooking Issues every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, hello. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Fun Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Is there an echo in there? <laughs> we're talking to Chris Leverage, talking about yeast, and we're going to recap just a touch on what we were just talking about and get into further uh, things to better your fermentations. So I want to go back to lager, what you were talking about, lagering. Mm-hmm. So when you're making a lager, tell us again, kind of the ABCs of yeast and lager. I've only made one lager. Really? And it turned out well, yes. I've luckily uh, ramped up my homebrew setup to now I have... Uh, Two refrigerators dedicated just to fermentation. We which do is as just well. We just lovely. haven't we haven't uh, kicked it in since we moved. So. Give, <laughs> give yourself some time to get yeah. there. But um, so temperature can really, really have a big impact on yeast, and especially when you start cooling it down. Now, lager yeast does function at that colder temperature, so it'll still ferment and do its job. It's just slower, and when you add more time. You also, a lot of lagers have a little bit less flavor. It takes a little longer for it to happen. A lot of problems can come up. So one of the ways to really make sure these off flavors don't happen, because in a lager, an off flavor, you taste it right away, um, is to, um, a big way to solve that is to just pitch enough yeast. And this can be frustrating because it's not just a simple one liter starter anymore. You're starting to talk about having to make a step starter or buying a whole bunch of yeast from the store, like three or four different packets, putting those into a big starter, and then putting the beer on top of that. Now, what's a step starter? A step starter. So, um, yeast, when they're crowded, kind of stop replicating. They kind of stop budding, and they kind of just eat the beer. They just ferment. And, And that's okay. But if you're really worried about making enough beer, enough, um, I'm sorry, enough yeast to pitch into beer, you're going to need um, to kind of use their biology to get what you want out of it. So a You step, want them to multiply. Right. You really are going for number here. You're not going for other characteristics right. out of a starter. You just want the right cell number. So the way to do that out of a one liter um, starter, you take 900 milliliters. So 90% of it, you dump that into your carboy, and then you save that other 10% to put into a brand new one liter starter. And then you wait two days, then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again until you get to the right amount you need. So if you're doing like a Weizenbach or some Doppelbach that's really strong, you're gonna be looking at three or four liters of starter. Um, Again, the shortcut to get around that would just be to buy four packs of yeast and to pitch that into a nice good size starter, like three or four liters, and then you'll get that same number. Good. Now, do you use dry yeast? Okay, I use um, I play a lot with um, one gallon experiments. So I'll do one batch, and I have five one gallon um, little jugs, and I'll just pitch into them, and then I'll start playing with different yeast. I find that it 
experiencing these differences are far more effective to understanding what they really do and tasting. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, when I was figuring out my IPAs and stuff like that, I just, you know, pitched the same beer into five different um, little jugs and I used different yeast in all of them. And all of a sudden I realized, like, for me, my favorite type of IPA is made with British ale yeast. Don't know why. That's just what balances everything out to me. That's what I like. You were talking about underpitching. What happens if you have too much yeast and how do you decide? So it can still take away from the beer, but to a much less extent. Overpitching, you're going to get a little thinner beer. It's going to eat up everything. You're going to get less of those characteristics that you really do want, like all those esters and some of those phenols you might be looking for. But at the same time, it'll just make the beer a little bit more drinkable. Not the worst characteristic from homebrew. I'm sure we've yeah. all right. <laughs> have had enough of the other. <laughs> right. The other now, one, one thing that did, I was thinking about, and we talked about this over the break, is that now sometimes people intentionally underpitch, like with Hefeweizens. So if people want more of that yeast characteristic, so Hefeweizen yeast notoriously gives, you know, banana, clove, bubble gum. There's a variety of, of different aromas and flavors that come from this yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times people will intentionally underpitch their Hefeweizen in order to stress the yeast and get more of those esters and phenols. And they will. And it's really easy to do. Um I've had only limited success because I also find that I get a lot of the fusel alcohols, mm-hmm. and that's what makes things taste like paint thinner, which I'm not fond of. Uh, Especially in high fives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's this careful balance of you know how much are you underpitching, how much are you stressing out the yeast. If you do underpitch, temperature is even more important. So if you're just putting your beer in a closet, you might want to still pitch a little bit more, and you know practice it, do it a couple times, see what kind of uh, results you get to get that banana flavor or that clove flavor, whatever you're really going for. Right. So there's characteristics from the yeast that you want, then you can, you know, underpitch intentionally in order to get to increase those. Absolutely. It just will take some experimentation. We have a friend that has a, you know, worked on his Hefeweizen for a long time, made many, 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 many um, versions of this until he got it right. But, you know, it does take some experimentation if you want, if you're looking for that exact flavor and and aroma profile Mm -hmm. from the yeast. But you can, uh, I mean, you talked about temperature too. Things change with that, not just in how fast it's working, but in flavors that come from yeah. it as well. I find that temperature, as soon as I made that jump up to having that chest freezer for my fermentation, the beer went from, okay, this is good, to this is really good. This is great. Give me another. And I consider that um, you know, fermentation happens at a whole different bunch of temperatures. Optimal is actually 90 degrees, but you should never ferment your beer at 90 degrees. There's a lot of other stuff coming out of the yeast at that time but um if you have your beer going up from you know 68 degrees in your closet up to 77 degrees there's all this other stuff that's coming out in the flavor profile all these other esters and phenols and all these other chemicals that um can really just kind of get in the way of the beer so if you're able to find a way to keep that beer at just one temperature you're only going to be dealing with that one characteristic to come out and that really just makes it easier to drink you know, you may like the character, you may not like the character, you may need to adjust it next time, but it's just going to be easier to drink, and all the other characteristics you may be going for will come out. So if you're doing a pale ale, you're going to taste the hops more. You're doing a nice malty beer, you're going to taste that malt character more, you know, like that's with a good porter or like a nice brown ale. It just makes it easier, and all of a sudden all your beers taste great. Does this relate to making bread? Does this happen in bread at the same and, and, and conversely in, in the same way? Well, when you think about making Actually. bread and stuff like that, when you um, 
you start uh, you and first put all the yeast in, you don't really want to put them in the fridge, right? Right. You want to end up putting them in a little bit warmer area. Now that's a lot for speed, but that's also for all the other flavor characteristics you want you want to come out when you're using yeast. Because people want more flavor generally yes. when they do their bread. The opposite of beer is, of course, <laughs> right. the same. You know, the same but different is bread, where you want more flavor and more character to come out in the product. Right. So let's talk about temperature control. If, Real if quick, you, don't oh, think you can overpitch your yeast just to fix for a, a temperature control. Nope. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. <laughs> so conversely to what you were saying. No, you, you want to be kind to your yeast in, in every way possible. Yes. The big yeah. difference you're going to notice is when you do all the things, like, you know, you put oxygen into your beer, you have the right temperature control, you put the right yeast in, and then you make sure you have the right yeast strain. When you have put all four of those, that's where you see that big jump in your flavor of the beer. It's not just one. Right. And it, the thing is, it's, it's less... I mean, I make a lot of sours, so I kind of like that unpredictable. Do you really? Yes. That's un- fantastic. That unpredictable. But when you're making a straight-up IPA or a stout mm-hmm. or something, you don't want that unpredictability. You want to have, you know, you know what you want it to taste like. So that's why, you know, having some te- some control, you know, treating your yeast kindly is important. Mm-hmm. Because you're not looking for lots of flavor from your yeast. You're looking for flavor, like you said, from your hops and your malt. So we'll talk tr- quick about temperature control. There's some easy things. You don't need a freezer. I mean, we've talked about this before on the show, and, you know, it's constant. It's a little trickier, especially, you know, New York City apartments. A lot of times they're overheated in the winter where we Very don't have overheated. central air in the, in the <laughs> summer. Yeah, yes. you know, we have we have our difficulties, and as you know, as everybody does across the country. Um, but there are definitely tips and tricks on how to get keep your beer in control. So th- there's a lot of simple ways you could do, even just finding a closet that's not close to your radiator. You know, things that aren't in your kitchen where you cook can go, can help with your temperature control. But also, um, think a little bit scientifically. If you increase the amount of water, you're going to slow the temperature change, right? Because more water means more energy needs to go into it in order. So there's like, that's a cushion. Basically, the water acts as a kind of, if you think about it like a cushion to the to the temperature. Right. And I've always found that um, if you remember those big jugs when you used to have cake parties when you were in college. Right, and you used to grab those big jugs. Those are huge jugs that if you have one, you can fill that up with another 10 mm-hmm. gallons of water, meaning that for your temperature of your wort to change, you would need to change 15 gallons of water. Right, It's just not going to happen as quick. But also, um, another really easy way I found is to repurpose those styrofoam coolers. If you ever get something from Omaha Steaks, you ever get, you know, you ever see those, you know, really nice coolers they have in the summer at 7-Eleven or wherever you get your coolers, <laughs> you can use them as insulation for your fermenter. And, you know, a couple of frozen soda bottles filled with water that you just throw in the freezer, you have a couple of them that cost you nothing, you just put it right in, can drop your fermentation temperature, those 5 or 10 degrees that you really need. Yeah, and those are easy to change out. I mean, just keep, you know, have four soda bottles around, mm-hmm. you know, keep two with your in your cooler, styrofoam cooler, two in the freezer, and just swap them out. Just swap them out once a day. Mm-hmm makes a big difference. And if you're using a carboy, uh, I saw this recently, uh, even though it's been around for a while, on, uh, on the Brewing Network. If you make angel food cake and you have one of those angel food cake round uh, you know, cake pans, uh-huh. put water Bun in that, pans. freeze, freeze it. that. pans, there you go. Freeze that and put it around the top of the, oh, of yeah. the carboy, like just through the hole. And, oh, and that's a fantastic totally, idea. Yeah, it's, it's like awesome. an ice ring. It's, a, it's a, a giant ice ring. You just pop an ice ring on the top of your thing and hold it fantastic. down. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's a cool one. <laughs> Wet t-shirts too. <laughs> yeah, I've heard Fruity. that. I just yeah, yeah. the wet t-shirt approach just seems so wet and so messy. <laughs> and I, it does it dries out too quick. And yes. I mean, especially in 
winter with all the with the radiator heat, you mm-hmm. know, it's your all our apartments are super dry. Yeah. I don't know. I've um, also one w- real quick thing. Uh, when it comes to really controlling your temperature, I, I learned this from the Jamil talk when he um, was traveling around selling his book, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Go to actually see him, shake his hand, and talk to him. Yes. Uh, you know, the internet's a wonderful thing. He, he was here last... I mean, he came here with, at the launch of this book. He used yeah. the practical fermentation. Well, you, or practical guide to fermentation. Chris he came to... There, that, that, yeah. that what you're talking about? Okay, yeah. yeah. So that was at Brooklyn Humber, which you're now teaching. Yes, I'm again <laughs> with that class uh, starting real soon. Starting tomorrow, I start teaching a yeast uh, class at Brooklyn Homebrew, which uh, for the second two classes, there's still something available. Try to check it out if you can. So this is kind of a preview. I mean, we want to we'll cover more yeast in the future. We only have 30 minutes. So if you guys would like, if you're in the New York City area, you would like to learn more about yeast, please go to brooklynhomebrew.com. Come on down, check it out. The other thing is, oh, so we'll tell you. So this is actually the yeast book that we all reference is called Yeast, The Practical Guide to Beer Fermentation. It's by Chris White with Jamil Zanishev. It's available. um, It's published by the Brewers Up Publications Brewers Association. It's a fantastic book. I mean, seriously, every home brewer. I I think it's a little intimidating for a beginner home brewer, but there's a ton of useful information. Absolutely. The big thing I picked up from him was to worry about fermentation in the first three days. Worry about that temperature the first three days if you could pay attention for three days you'll make a big difference yeah that's true because most of the fermentation is happening then so that's when you want the tight control all right so we got to wrap it up today i want to remind you if you'd like to support the show and heritageradionetwork.org which is a fantastic organization they're not for profit membership starts at 60 bucks and if you homebrew out there you get a five percent discount at both bitter and esters and Brooklyn Homebrew. You also get a dollar off all pints at Jimmy's number 43. Mm-hmm. So check out heritageradionetwork.org. And come visit me at 508 Gastro Brewery. Yay. Yeah. yeah. We'll be there. there. Very excited about it. Thank you guys so there. much for listening. So next week, we're very excited. We're going to have a Kavass show Ooh, with yes. um, the author of the book on Kavass, Dan Woodski from Western Pennsylvania. So tune in next Monday at 7 p.m. And we're going to quiz Dan Woodski about Kavass. I'm making a fresh batch tomorrow. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. Thanks to engineer Joe Galarraga and uh, our producer, Jack Insley. Thank you, Heritage Radio Network and Roberta's. I'm here in Bushwick. We'll talk to you next week. Put man about it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.